Hello, my name's Kevin Albertson and I'm a Professor of Economics at Manchester Metropolitan University Business School. Now I'd like to talk to you today about rethinking what we mean by productivity. You may have seen in the paper that Britain is said to have a productivity gap and that we need to address this somehow if we're going to improve our standard of living. I want to put it to you that although that's probably technically true, the way we currently define productivity, it isn't true. But let's first of all talk about where this whole idea of productivity comes from. Now, Nobel Memorial Prize winner in economics, Paul Krugman, once said productivity isn't everything. But in the long run, it is almost everything. Country's ability to improve its standard of living over time depends almost entirely on its ability to raise its output per worker. I disagree with that statement to a large extent. There is, of course, a lot of truth in it, but if you think about what it is implying, it can also hide a lot of, well, counterproductive behavior. So let's first of all talk about what we mean by output. Now, in the early days of the Industrial Revolution, output meant things like bricks, clothes, things like that. But nowadays, a lot of our economy is based on services. Our output is defined essentially as the amount of money that changes hands in the economy over a period of time, say a particular year. And that's called GDP. Real GDP is kind of the same thing, but it is taking into account price changes. Now, you may well think straight away, surely the amount of money that changes hands in an economy doesn't necessarily mean we're better off. Yes, if we had more housing, we had more clothing, we had more food, that probably would make us better off. But let's supposing that we're spending all that extra money on, I don't know, commuting to work because we can't afford to buy a house close to where we live. Let's suppose we're spending that extra money on things like, say, warfare. That's if some nation needs to spend money on their defense, then obviously that has to be done. But all the same, it's better to have peace. Let's suppose we spend all that extra money on, I don't know, cleaning up an oil spill or something like that, or putting right some kind of ecological disaster. You can see a lot of spending on GDP is not actually adding to our welfare at all. On top of that, according to the UK Office of National Statistics, quote, debt as a percentage of GDP has nearly doubled since the early 70s, unquote. Now, what does this mean? Let's put it in plain language. Remember, GDP is the amount of money that's changing hands. Essentially, this is saying, on average since the early 70s, so basically over a four-decade period, every one pound additional spend in the UK is backed up by two pounds worth of borrowing. But how can you even call that progress? Think about if you're running your house. You have to borrow one pound in order to pay your gas and electricity. That means you have to borrow two pounds which you are going to have to pay back at some stage in the future, you're only going to be able to pay back that £2 if at some stage in the future your expenditure is going to decline. Either that or your income massively increases. At any event, over the last 40 to 50 years, GDP growth in the UK has been backed up by increasing our debt. So that's not really progress in any way that a regular accountant would consider it. The other problem with um, productivity as it's currently defined 
is that, as I say, it depends on output per worker. Now, let us suppose that you can get more outputs per worker. That sounds kind of like a good thing if the output is stuff that we want. But it doesn't necessarily improve everybody's quality of life. We know from economic history that when output per worker increases, normally what happens is that those who hold on to military or political power or capital power appropriate the benefits of that productivity growth. So for example, in the early Industrial Revolution, the working classes in England actually got shorter, which is quite often taken as a sign of their being less well-nourished. So it was clear that the Industrial Revolution did not improve the quality of life of most of the people in England. It rather took away from it. And this comes down to a paradox, which when I was an undergraduate student, I used to call the bulldozer problem. It basically works like this. Let's suppose you have a little town. And this particular town, there's enough work digging holes in order to employ 10 people working 40 hours a week. And the town is in what economists call equilibrium. So there's enough work for everybody at the moment. Somebody comes along and they invent a bulldozer or they bring a bulldozer. Let's ignore the cost of the bulldozer just for the moment. This bulldozer does the work of 10 people. Now, and this is a, a kind of a parable in the real world. Obviously, you wouldn't get these two extremes, but there are two extreme points of view. One of them is the 10 people digging holes look at the bulldozer and they say, right, well, this bulldozer does the work of 10 people. So all we need to do is one tenth as much work. Everybody will work four hours a week instead of 40. We will get the same number of holes dug. And so therefore we'll work a lot less and still get the same level of income. That sounds idyllic. That is if the benefits of the productivity gain are shared. The other extreme is the person who owns the bulldozer says, right, I only need to employ one out of you 10 people digging holes now. And the job is going to go to the person who's prepared to do it for the least amount of money. So these 10 shortly to be unemployed people, or rather nine of them will be unemployed, the 10th one will be driving a bulldozer. They will bid amongst themselves to see who's prepared to take the least amount of money for driving a bulldozer. And they may well, history shows generally they do, have a decline in their standard of living as they bid down their hourly wage. Now, in the, in the real world, Normally, some of the benefits of productivity growth would be shared and a lot of it accruing to the person that owns the bulldozer. But that is not going to happen necessarily. So you need to have structures in place to make sure that the benefits of productivity growth actually are shared rather than having them appropriated by whoever it is owns the capital. So productivity, as it was previously, well, as it's currently defined, might not necessarily be such a great thing anyway. Indeed, one of the reasons why productivity in the UK may have been lagging behind other countries at the time of the coronavirus or at the time of the 2008 financial crisis is that UK employers were less likely to reduce their workforce. And given that we quite often say that being employed is a precondition for all sorts of things, quality of life, then perhaps it's a good idea for employers not necessarily to reduce their workforce by quite as much as perhaps economics efficiency gains would indicate. So if I don't really like the way productivity is defined at the moment, what alternative is there? Well, I suggest instead of defining productivity by output per worker or output per hour put in, 
worker hour put in, we should define it as the output per kilowatt hour put in. Let's define it as the output per unit of energy put in. The time is right to make this change because we are facing a future of energy constraints for two reasons. First, the energy cost of energy is rising. Energy, even fossil fuels, which clearly people don't actually create fossil fuels, but you need to put energy in to get them out of the ground or wherever they're currently stored. The cheapest oil fields, as far as we know, have already been exploited. The cheapest gas fields too. If it were not the case, we wouldn't be drilling in the middle of the ocean for more oil or fracking for more gas. Yes, there's still oil and gas out there, but the higher is the energy cost of accessing those resources, the less there is available to maintain our standard of living. So the cost of energy will be increasing significantly over the coming decade. Now, we know what happens when this type of thing occurs in our economy. Think about the fuel crises of the oil shocks, as they were called, of the 70s and 80s. The oil shocks of the 70s and 80s should have woken us up to the danger of running our economy, which requires easy access to cheap energy. But it didn't. Unfortunately, rather than saying this means that we need to rethink the way we run things, well, people did rethink the way they ran them, but they came to the wrong conclusion. They thought it was as a result of labor unrest and so on. A lot of the labor unrest, of course, resulted from when you have what economists call stagflation as energy costs increase, you have increasing prices, but you also have increasing unemployment. Now, that is a, a toxic mix for social welfare, and naturally, people tend to try to complain about that sort of thing. But the actual problem wasn't labor unrest as such. It was the cost which was being borne by the most economically vulnerable in society, as these things quite often are, and it was their response to that. Now, the change which was made was essentially to reduce the power of labor to withstand the erosion in their quality of life. And this was said to have saved the country back in the 1980s, one of the things that saved the country back in the 1980s. But really, if you think back, you'll probably come to the conclusion, actually, it was the UK's discovery of its own North Sea oil and gas deposits probably had a lot more to do with saving the country. If energy is getting expensive, discovering that you have your own energy is actually quite a good thing, of course. However, because we mistook the reason for that unrest, we did not address the fundamental underlying point, which is the vulnerability of our economy to increases in the cost of fuel and the cost of energy. North Sea oil and gas allowed us to put off that reckoning, but that reckoning is getting closer now. So that's one reason why we need to be more careful in our use of energy. The other reason, of course, is we still have a lot of our energy coming from fossil fuels. Not all of it, an increasing proportion of it doesn't, but a lot of it still does. We know we need to reduce our carbon footprint as well. So given that, what with technological progress, we know there probably are not enough jobs in the world anyway to keep everybody employed. Why do we want to fixate on creating the same amount of output for fewer people employed? That's actually not our problem. Indeed, if we create the same amount of output for fewer people employed, we're creating a different problem, unemployment. So let's not worry too much about that. If we begin to fixate on, well, if not fixate, then at least to incentivize the increase in output per kilowatt hour used in production, 
then we can change the way we think about productivity and address this problem. There's an axiom in economics, to observe is to change. If we start looking in the right direction, we might start moving in the right direction. And who knows? With the right incentives, CEOs of the future may earn respect, and their salaries of course, not from the number of workers they've laid off in the name of efficiency, but rather by the scale of the reduction of energy use in production. So that is my suggestion. Productivity. Let's define it as output per unit of energy use instead and try to increase that. Thank you for your kind attention.